You're listening to teaching from Castle Hills Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. More information about Castle Hills Christian Church is available at chccsa.com. Have you ever noticed how some job titles are very misleading? And I'm not talking about when your boss gives you a job title change instead of a raise, but some job titles don't exactly capture what you'll be doing. The summer after my freshman year of college, I had the amazing job of being a sandwich artist. Now, if you're not familiar with the prestigious role of sandwich artist, if you've ever been to a Subway shop, the person who makes your sandwich is called the sandwich artist. Now, I don't know that much artistry was involved in my sandwich making, but it was a job I enjoyed quite a bit, especially right after my freshman year of college, a job that included free food was amazing. But that job title can be a little misleading. Maybe you've seen the what I really do meme where it shows a job title and then describes through pictures the way different people perceive that job title. It shows, you know, what your boss, your coworkers, your friends, uh, yourself, what you actually do, these different ways of perceiving a job. And if If you ever thought about a youth minister, that's a job that has a lot of different perceptions. Uh, You know, what a parent of a student in our ministry thinks of what I do versus what I think I'm doing versus, you know, what a student might think I'm doing. Those perceptions can be dramatically different. Today we're wrapping up our Jesus Is series, and in the series we've been going through John chapter 1 and just noticing the ways that Jesus is described in the text there. John chapter 1 opens with this beautiful poetic description of Jesus being described as the creator of the universe. It also talks about Jesus being the light of the world. Last week, we looked at the idea that John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, describes Jesus as the Lamb of God. And today we're wrapping up the series by talking about the fact that Jesus is called King of Israel, the King in John chapter 1. Now, King is a title that can mean a lot of different things to different people in different contexts. Maybe you've played a video game that involves castles and sieges and, and kings and queens, and, or maybe you've played chess, and, and that's what comes to your mind when you think of a king. Maybe you think of like Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, or maybe your mind goes to uh, the Old Testament and thinks about some of the Old Testament kings. But king is a title that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people. So what does the word king mean to you? We see that Jesus is described as king in John chapter 1. I'm going to read the story starting in verse 43. It says this, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. It's interesting that Nathaniel already has some preconceived notions about Jesus just because of where he's from. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, this may just be common village rivalry. Uh, Nazareth is probably less than 500 residents at this time, so it's a small village. And there's an expectation that maybe you even still have that important people come from important places and important families, and nothing good would come out of this small little village of Nazareth. Nevertheless, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold an Israelite, indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, 
and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's interesting here how quickly Nathaniel's mind was changed about Jesus. So what changed his mind? Just the fact that Jesus knew who Nathaniel was and what he had been doing. When Jesus communicated to him, hey, I know who you are, I know your character, I know where you've been and what you've been doing, that was enough to convince Nathaniel that he was something special, that Jesus was actually important despite where he came from. But what does Nathaniel mean when he calls Jesus the king of Israel? There was a strong feeling among many people in Israel during the first century that God was about to do something really big in their world. More specifically, they believed that God was going to send someone. This is often called the messianic expectation. During the time between the Old and the New Testament, the people of Israel returned to their homeland and found themselves once again under rule of a foreign power, this time by the Roman Empire. And the expectation was that God would once again intervene and liberate them. And this, this idea began to brew and to develop among the people of Israel. Many people expected God to send someone to be a savior for them. Someone like Moses, who would step up, intervene, and free them. Or someone like David, who would be a warrior king to stand up against Rome. They called this person the Messiah, the Anointed One. The Greek word for this is Christos, or Christ. And this is where the idea of Jesus Christ comes from. But Nathaniel wasn't the only one who wanted Jesus to be the king. In John chapter 6, there's this interesting story. And I'm just going to read what happens at the end of it. John chapter 6, verse 15 says this, When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force, to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That's crazy. Jesus was just doing Jesus' things, and because of that, the people decided that they were going to go against his will and make him king whether he wanted to be or not. So what did the crowd mean when they tried to make Jesus king of Israel against his will? Well, let's set the scene. This happens right after the feeding of the 5,000. This is a story where Jesus miraculously provides food and sustenance for a hungry crowd who is in need, who has come to him to listen to his teachings and to be healed. And when they see that Jesus is able to feed them, to take care of their physical needs, they're so overwhelmed by this that they don't care what Jesus thinks about it. They're going to make him king of Israel. How often do our political convictions center around money? economics, and our material well-being. And this criticism can be lodged regardless of what side of the political spectrum you exist in our context. The reality is a lot of us want to be taken care of. And Jesus here, because he takes care of the crowd's needs, which is a good thing that he did, they want to make him king by force. Later on in Jesus' ministry, he's once again accused of being the king. In John chapter 18, starting verse 33, we see that Jesus here is on trial at the end of his life. And this is what it says. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked, Are you the king of the Jews? Which is actually talking about the king of the Judeans, a specific region here. Jesus answered, Do you ask this of your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? 
Your own nation and the chief priest have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So here, Pilate, this Roman official, accuses Jesus of being an imposter king. So what does Pilate mean when he asks Jesus if he's the king of the Judeans? Well, let's set the scene here. They're in the palace of Herod the Great, and this is a place that was used by governors uh, to come and stay during festivals in Jerusalem so they could have their presence there to calm the crowds and to prevent unrest. Now, governors didn't normally intervene and rule in cases unless involved Roman law. So violation of local customs or religious beliefs wasn't something they would step into unless the punishment was death. It was a capital case. So the Roman officials would pronounce death sentences. So Pilate, who was governor of Judea from 26 to 36 AD, comes and he has to hear this case, this accusation against Jesus that he is claiming to be the king. This would have been a capital offense. But his only person, the only person who could say you're the king was the Roman emperor. So Pilate ends up having Jesus flogged. And we read about this in, in John chapter 19. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, and the soldiers rove, wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they dressed him in purple robes. They kept coming up to him saying this, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him on the face. Nathaniel thought that Jesus was the rightful king. The crowd wanted to make Jesus king, even though he resisted. The political and religious establishment was worried that Jesus was trying to become king, and ultimately Rome executed Jesus as a wannabe king. And so when we're done reading the book of John, we ask ourselves, if Jesus was king, what type of king was he? Because he was not the kind of king that these people were expecting, He was not the kind of king that probably comes to your imagination when you hear the word king. So if Jesus is a king, what type of king is he? In John chapter 3, verse 17, it says this, Indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, Jesus seems to be the king of an upside-down kingdom. Rather than offering judgment and condemnation of the people who, who have stepped out of line, who have betrayed his kingdom, Jesus comes into the world to save the world. His ethics, his views, understanding of the world are completely and radically different than what you might expect of a king. It's no surprise that in John chapter 12, when he enters in Jerusalem, he does it as a humble king. He rides in on a donkey, Virtually, he refuses the title and all the baggage that it comes with. And ultimately, Jesus sacrifices himself. Jesus was a king unlike any other. So if Jesus is king, what should we do? Well, we should submit to his authority. In John chapter 14, verse 15, it says, If you love me, this is Jesus speaking, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Kings usually rule out of threats of power and punishment taking of your stuff. But Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. In John chapter 1, we've already talked about how Jesus is described. and says, in the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning. 
The type of king that Jesus is, is one that demands our attention because he's the one who's spoken to existence, the world, who understands it on a level that we never could. John chapter 15, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And usually when we read this verse, we're, we're tempted to say that Jesus is saying, hey, you've got to do things my way. But if you look at it in its context, this is an invitation to come and participate in the way of life, the way of truth that Jesus is offering. Jesus told Pilate, this Roman official, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is the ruler of an unworldly kingdom. So if Jesus' kingdom is unworldly, that means we should live unworldly in it. In John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would keep fighting for me. In, in other words, you, you know, if I was really leading some sort of revolution, some sort of political upheaval in this moment, then people would be taking up arms. But instead, he says that they are, they're not doing that because his kingdom comes from somewhere else. Now, this story doesn't come from the Gospel of John, but Matthew chapter 20, there's an interesting little story about power dynamics in Jesus' kingdom. James and John are, are two of Jesus' closest followers, and their mom comes on the scene and asks Jesus for special privileges for her sons. She says to Jesus, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. The seats of power on the right and left of the kingdom have been the closest advisors. And this mom is asking, hey, as I understand power, you're going to be king, and I want my sons to have a share in what you are doing and the power that you bring. But Jesus called them and said to him, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus, his kingdom was unworldly. It didn't function with the power structures of the world. Instead, it's based off of self-sacrifice, denial, and the willingness to put your life on the line. In Philippians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul describes Jesus in this way and how we should live in response to Jesus in this way. He says, Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, followers of Jesus should seek the interest of others. Political power, social power, influence in our culture is all about seeking your own interests. But to be a follower of Jesus, to, to live in this unworldly kingdom where Jesus reigns and we submit to his authority means that we seek the interest of others. Followers of Jesus should be humble. Not thinking too highly of themselves, not putting themselves first, but humble. 
Followers of Jesus should serve. They should find a place where they are making a difference by investing in the lives of other people. And followers of Jesus must practice self-sacrifice. 